We're about three weeks away from Christmas. Yay. Some of you are beginning to stress. <laughs> there are things on your mind. There are parties to attend. There are people you need to shop for. There's a house you need to decorate. There's cookies you need to break, bake. I like uh, oatmeal, oatmeal raisin, but don't stress over me. <laughs> and then there's, um, yeah, there's a tree you need to trim. There's just uh, so much stuff you need to do. So I want to say to your word as a shepherd, I want you to slow down. The greatest threat to your spiritual life is this rushing and hurrying through life. Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 6.16 says these words. This is what the Lord says to you. You stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Ask where is the good way and walk in it. And then here's the promise. And you will find rest for your souls. And that's what we're talking about this morning is finding rest for your souls. God's gift to you of restoration. There's a gift beneath the tree. It's the gift of restoration. Trying to find what the good way is. Learning to walk in that path with the result that we will find rest for our souls. Most of us here in this room deal with significant stress. We live in an affluent, prosperous, advanced, powerful nation. Yet we lack internal rest. We feel overwhelmed, don't you? Overextended. We feel maxed out often and stretched to the limit. So I'm learning some lessons in my own journey. We're trying to put these down in a book. You'll hear a part of that today. But I'm learning to live with a simplified heart. And one of the lessons of a simplified heart is an awareness that I have a soul. <laughs> you also have a soul. You may have given little thought to the fact that you have a soul, but you really do. We forget that we have a soul. If we go back to Genesis <clears throat> chapter 2 and verse 7, And the Lord God, when he created man from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So what does that mean? What does it mean that you and I have a soul? What does a soul look like? Your soul is the invisible part of you. Your soul is the real you. And your body is a container for your soul. Your body is nothing more than glorified Tupperware. But your body, your body is not what's really important. What's really important is your soul. You can lose part of your body, but your soul remains unchanged. Jesus said the most valuable thing you have without question is your soul. He asked a very provocative question when he said, what good will it be if a man gains the whole world? If he's as wealthy as Bill Gates or Donald Trump or Tiger Woods? What good will it be if a man gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, Jesus is picturing here in this imagery the picture of a balance sheet. On one side of the ledger is the whole world. Your world consists of the things you have worked for, your home, your car, 
your vacation, your career, your investments, your clothes, your closet, everything you have, everything you've worked to acquire in this world. But there's another column, namely your soul. He's saying you've paid a lot of attention to your outer world, but you haven't paid the same amount of attention to your inner world, to your soul. Just as you have to learn how to take care of that body of yours, so you have to learn to take care of your soul. So here's the problem. Let me illustrate with a garage. We build garages in our homes for what purpose? To park the car, right? But here's what happens over time. Life begins to clutter up that garage, especially if you have children getting married. There's boxes everywhere in that garage. And there's no place to park the car. The garage was created to park the car. But there's no room for that garage to do what it was intended to do. And so the same is true for you. God created your soul. Your soul is meant to enjoy life, to enjoy God to enjoy people. He gave you a soul that you might have a relationship, a living relationship with the living God. But the tragedy is we have filled up our lives, filled up our hearts with so many other things, so much activity. We have pushed God out and there's really no room for us to have a relationship with God. So here's the point. You have a soul. Say with me, I have a soul. All right, good. When you, whether you think about it much or aware of it, you have a soul. And your soul requires attention. For most of us, our souls need restoration. When we speak of the soul, we have many expressions to describe the soul. We say a person who's been traveling much, they have a weary soul. Or we say of the person who is smiling, they have a happy soul. We say of the person who is wounded, they have an injured soul. Your soul is composed of three parts. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. For your soul to be, to be healthy, you need to believe with your mind the truth about yourself. Whether you believe it or not, you are God's beloved. God set his love upon you long before he created the world. Even when you are unaware of his love, God loves you. And when you become aware of his love, that God is not angry with you, that God is not disappointed with you, when you know you cannot lose this love, the love of God becomes the emotional fuel of the Christian's soul. So to be healthy, first of all, you must know how deeply loved you are. And for your soul to be healthy... Not only must the mind be riveted to the truth, but a happy soul is choosing to align one's will with God's will, to move out of self into selflessness, out of self-preoccupation, self-absorption, self-annihilation. The pathway to joy is to do something for somebody expecting nothing back. That's the alignment of our will to God's will. And for your soul to be healthy, your mind is gripped by the truth, your will is aligned to his will, and then the emotions you begin to experience are joy and peace. So 
in order for you to experience the peace and joy that Christmas brings, we're going to work this morning toward health. Beginning in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, the familiar Christmas story. We're actually going to travel to very, three very familiar places this morning, beginning with the Christmas story. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The role of a shepherd is to take care of the flock. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and where he leads, they follow. These sheep were being tended to near Bethlehem, and many of these sheep would become sacrifices at Jerusalem. The shepherd would live his life attuned and attached to the well-being of the sheep, taking care of them every day, making sure they would lay down in green pastures, making sure they would drink from the still waters, protecting them from predators like foxes and wolves and um, coyotes, rescuing them when they were downcast. We'll talk about that in a moment. Pursuing them when they had wandered off. The shepherd knew that the innocent sheep would have to be sacrificed one day at the temple. These shepherds did not live in the town. They were lowly and meek and poor. They did not have any status. To be a shepherd at this time was something just above being a leper. But they were faithful, taking care of business, watching over their flock by night. And the shepherds were the first to hear that the Son of Man had become a real man, that God had stepped into humanity, the Word had become flesh. The shepherds on this wintry night, as I imagine it, were huddled close to a fire. But suddenly an angel made a proclamation that a newborn babe was born. And we've had a number of those recently in our church, and we celebrate each new birth. The angel announced to the shepherds, and the shepherds themselves were quite frightened. Now the message of all of this is that when God comes to us, and one question when asked this Christmas season is, how is God coming to me? God was coming not to the high and mighty, but God was coming to the lowly and to the needy, to the wounded, to those poor in spirit. And the first thing the angel said to the shepherd was, do not be afraid. Well, the glory of the Lord had shown around them. Can you imagine these angels, this angel coming from the very throne room of God, now in the presence of the shepherds, and it lit up the night sky. The glory of God with all those uh, colors was now surrounding the shepherds. And he said, I bring you good news. We hear plenty of bad news, don't we? I bring you the gospel. The very words good news means the gospel. The angels were bringing the gospel to the shepherd. The good news that would bring great joy. Sin brings about in our life despair and hopelessness. But the gospel brings something we can rejoice about. I bring you good news of great joy for all people, for all mankind. The message was not only directed to the shepherds, it was directed to us and to all humanity. So what is the message? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. His name is Christ the Lord. It was because of Christ's incarnation 
and his identity with humanity, that God could now save us. It was he who knew no sin that became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It was Peter who said, He himself bore our sins in his body, that we might die to our sins and live unto righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. This morning we're going to try to make an obvious connection between Bethlehem and Calvary. But whatever your situation is, God has the power to deliver you. He can move mighty mountains. He can move away stones. And God can deliver you. This is good news for all people of all time. That wherever you are, whoever you are, God has the power to deliver you. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus told this story in John 10 about thieves and robbers who would break into the sheepfold. They would cross over that barrier. You see, in the ancient world, the sheepfold in the desert, the wilderness, was a stone wall about yay high, about waist high. And there were briars on top of it, keeping the sheep in, keeping the thieves and robbers out. He said, but the true shepherd, when he speaks, the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. And I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And the connection is Psalm 23, another familiar place about an intimate relationship with God. David himself was a shepherd and took care of the sheep outside of Bethlehem. He reflects on his own experience about the Lord being his shepherd. The Lord is the personal name of God disclosed to Moses at the burning bush. It means, I am who I am. The name of God refers to his timelessness, that God is the same through all generations, and that God is self-sufficient. That means God needs nothing. On the other side of the equation is that God is our shepherd, and the sheep know his voice. A story is told in the 1980s in Palestine, near Bethlehem. Israel had um, occupied the land, and the people of Bethlehem were not paying their taxes. And so the sheep were gathered into a sheepfold. There were thousands upon thousands of Palestinian sheep that were gathered in a sheepfold. And one woman, she'd suffered hardship, a Palestine, Palestinian woman. She'd suffered hardship. And she said, my husband was killed in battle. And I have only my 25 sheep and my son. These sheep provide for my livelihood. And the soldier said, well, how could I ever discern your sheep among thousands and thousands of sheep? She said, may I call to my sheep? You see, every shepherd has a voice. And every shepherd has a song. And every shepherd has a little flute-like device. And so she played her little flute. And out of the thousands of sheep that were in that sheepfold, 25 followed her out. You see, the true sheep will know the voice of the shepherd. When you hear the shepherd speaking to you or singing to you or playing for you, you will hear the sound of your sweet Savior calling you to himself. Many have memorized this psalm. Many have requested this psalm to be preached at their funerals. But it's a beautiful psalm about our shepherd. Isaiah said about our shepherd that 
He feeds his flock like a shepherd, and he holds them close unto his heart. Even the young mother and, and her young, he takes care of them. He says, I shall not be in want. I am contented. I am satisfied. The Lord watches over me. The Lord protects me. I may not have what my neighbor has, but I lack nothing. I may not have all the luxuries of this life, but I'm in need of nothing. My shepherd has taken care of my life. But there comes a time when a sheep becomes downcast. You see, sheep love to lie down. And when they lie down, they lie down on their side. And sometimes the center of gravity shifts in a hollow or depression where they find themselves on their back. And now their feet are outstretched. And they have no one to turn them over. And a sheep will perish in a couple hours of Palestinian sun unless the shepherd comes to rescue them. You see, that's what Jesus was talking about when he said he saw the multitudes and he felt compassion for them for they were downcast and distressed like sheep without a shepherd. A sheep has four stomachs. And there's lots of gases that build up inside. And unless you put that sheep onto his feet, he's going to die. There were some people, they were traveling in England, in Shakespeare country, four of them. They decided to take a drive on the back roads. And as they navigated the country roads, they watched a flock of sheep. And one of the sheep, there was a flock, and then there was one sheep that was away from the flock. And somebody said, I bet that's a cat's sheep. And so they went to the sheep and discovered the sheep was on her back and her feet were up and she was kind of bleeding plaintively, like, help me. <laughs> and so they came to the sheep, the four of them, and it took them to turn the sheep over, discovering she was pregnant, carrying a little lamb inside, and hadn't been shorn. And then they realized she was kind of wobbly like a drunk sailor because <laughs> the circulation wasn't flowing through her legs and they rubbed her legs out. And eventually she kind of bounced off to her flock, <laughs> kind of bleeding a... Thank you. You see, it's the Lord who finds us when we're on our back in that hollow, de de depressed place, and we can't right ourselves, and it's He who restores us. And I shall not lack rest because He makes me lie down in green pastures, and He leads me beside still waters. You see, sheep do not lie easily, neither do you lie easily. It's impossible to make them lie down unless four requirements are met. First of all, a sheep must be free of fear. If there's a predator lurking, a sheep cannot lie down. They will not lie down as long as there's friction with another sheep. You know how hard it is to fall asleep when there's friction with another sheep? <laughs> well, that's just like being part of the flock. Or if they're tormented by parasites, if their water is polluted, they're drinking water they shouldn't drink, they can't lie down, they're disturbed. Or as long as they feel endangered. Fear, friction, flies, famine. Sheep must be free of all of these before they lie down. And I shall not lack life, for he restores my soul. When I am weak, the good shepherd strengthens me. When I am injured, he knows my injury. When I am sick, he attends to me. When I am lost, he pursues me. One weekend I spent in West Virginia. I was with a shepherd. And one of his sheep got away. had a couple hundred sheep. And the sheep had found herself into a ditch. And we found, we spent four hours looking for the sheep. We finally found her. 
And she was so happy to find us and for us to find her. We uh, gathered her up, put her in the back of the pickup, and drove her back to the flock. You see, when a sheep is lost, the shepherd takes initiative to find that lost sheep. And when that sheep is broken, it's the shepherd who makes them whole. I imagine the sheep themselves suffer injuries, and the shepherd stitches them back. I imagine the sheep themselves suffer fevers, and the shepherd lovingly sticks their head into a bucket. <laughs> I imagine the sheep themselves become dirty, and the shepherd takes woolite and washes off their wool. <laughs> All of us have an insatiable hunger for love and acceptance, belonging, approval. We're driven to so many things. We're drawn to the voices of our day. I so want to be loved. I have to earn it. Prove it. Do something valuable. And then you'll have worth. But then you hear the voice of the shepherd. <laughs> you don't have anything to prove to me. I love you as you are. We have based our identity on I am what I do. I am what others say I am. Or I am what I have. But our true identity is we're the beloved son and daughter of God. We are part of his flock. He is our shepherd. He restores my soul. And I shall not lack guidance in my life because the Lord guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. You can be sure of this. Whatever path you are on, if the righteous shepherd has guided you, it's a righteous path. Let me say this, that left to ourselves, we are all wanderers. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all unto him, the shepherd. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The psalm writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We can even wander away at Christmas time, the time of his birth. So when we follow him, we follow him for his namesake on a pathway of righteousness. That is to say that God will always give us a choice as to which street we will take. We'll either follow the path of righteousness or the path that is far away from him to our own peril. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Have you experienced this enormous comfort of the presence of God? The valley was a place of danger because wild animals lurk in the valley behind the walls. Sudden storms can sweep down the valley floors. There may be floods. And the sun doesn't shine very well in the valley. There's shadows, shadows of death. The valleys of the shadows of death can be just as much the right path God has chosen for us as the green pastures, the still waters, that is to say, the life is not always, this life is not always a tranquil experience. God gives us valleys, and you may find yourself in a valley right now, in a very dark place where God seems distant from you, dense darkness. It is in those times of darkness and despair, even depression, that we find that the antidote for our loneliness is the presence of our shepherd. He is able to protect his sheep and calm his, their fears in their very worst times. 
we're never as conscious of God's presence as when we pass through life's valleys. I was um, not long ago over in Africa. And while I was in Bangui, I was walking down the street. And there was a guy that um, abducted me with a machine gun. And he said to me, terrorist. And I said, no, pastor. He said, terrorist. I said, no, pastor. He said, terrorist. I said, pastor. So I had this little debate going back and forth. So he, he had a gun. I didn't. So um, I followed him to this um, enclave, this overhang of a building, at which time he tried to interrogate me in French and Sangha, which I didn't understand very well. But I kept telling him, I've come to help your people. I've come to help the children. We're trying to build these schools. And eventually he came to the point of, of um, he wanted some cigarettes. I didn't have any. Then he wanted some money. And I was able to give him 2000 of their currency, about five bucks. And then he said, go. And the amazing thing about that experience for me was, though I was in the face of danger, I felt enormous peace from God. There was a presence of God in my soul. Even to this day, I can remember the peace that God was sweeping over me in the face of great danger. One of the characteristics of despair is a sense of being alone. And David pictured himself among a flock, even though I walk, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He's stressing here his aloneness. But what gives him comfort is the presence of his shepherd. What we need to do when we feel the danger of this life is to realize the presence of our shepherd. Then we will not fear, fear evil, because our shepherd carries a rod with which to whack our enemies. And our shepherd carries a staff when we fall into a ditch to extract us from that. You don't have to fear because the great lion of the tribe of Judah walks with you. I read a testimony of a man living in China. And he was arrested for his faith. He was a pastor. He was taken to a prison. Lived in solitary confinement. And they would take him out of that solitary confinement and they would beat him, trying to extract information from him. And in his testimony he said that while I was being beaten for my faith, while I stayed in that that prison, I felt the enormous presence of God that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. That even in the worst times of life, God is with us. And thou prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You see, he prepares for us this banquet table, this feasting table. It's a picture of abundance. He fills our cup to overflowing. He anoints our head with oil. Surely the goodness of God, His love, will follow me all the days of my life. My shepherd has gone before me, and He follows behind me with His love and His goodness. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You may not dwell in the house you're living in now forever, but I'll tell you about a house you'll live in forever, the house that God has built for you. I will dwell in that house, (laughs) needs no repair, forever. The house forever with him. I mentioned earlier that this good shepherd loves to bring restoration to our souls. I mentioned to you also that we're writing a book about restoration and healing. So I want to share with you, before I walk you through experience, a story of my own life. As many of you know, I grew up in a very broken home, very broken father. My father himself was an alcoholic. 
My earliest memory to me when I was three years old was my dad going to the bar with him in his Oldsmobile. Six-year-old standing in the bar, 10-year-olds cracking a Budweiser with him. So I was reading a book in New York City, and I, something came to my mind. It was a memory. The memory was of me being six years old and my dad being 40 and looming over top of me, saying stuff to me like, you so disappoint me. I'm so upset with you. You're really worthless. And there I was, broken, with my own broken dad. And in that room, there was a broken window. You see, the question I always had was, does God really care about me? Do I really matter to God? Does my life have any value to him? And as I was in that broken place, I was feeling that worthlessness that I felt growing up. And I looked through that broken window. See, broken people don't know they've broken people around them. As I looked through that broken window, I saw the face of God. It's the face of Jesus. And there were tears streaming down his face. You see, I really mattered to God. God really cared about me. And God was healing a memory from my past. It was as if God was knocking at the door of my heart, bringing back to my mind a memory so as to heal it. Now, before we do this, I just want to ask you a question. Do you believe that God can restore you and heal you? Because the emotional connection between your life and the cross is the pathway for healing. I want you to close your eyes. Take a moment to imagine a time in your life when you were committing sin or a set of sins. You might picture yourself alone in a room with a magazine or with a computer. You might remember yourself in college with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend. You might remember a scene when you're in middle school or high school. Your memory may go all the way back to childhood. Wherever your mind or your, the spirit is taking you, picture that time. Dredge it up. Pull it up to your awareness, no matter how red-faced you feel. The sin may have only been a trifle, or it may have been something terrible. I'm not asking you to dwell on it. Just bring it up long enough to feel the discomfort of your emotions. So when you get there, just kind of nod your head up and down, okay? Okay, I'm going to stay a little longer here before we go forward. I want you to go back now in your memory to something that was really painful, something that's really shameful, some place you don't normally go to, a room in your memory that you really don't want to remember. So when you get there, shake your head yes. Okay, we're going to go on a little journey. You're in that room, and you're doing something in your room you don't want to talk about. You're involved with something you don't want others to know about. The truth is you feel very guilty about what is happening in that room, You've always been about ashamed about what happened in that room. Your life in that room is a life of secrecy. You were cut off from all that is good and whole beyond the door. Now imagine in committing that set of sins or sin, you hear a knocking at the door. The knocking is steady and persistent, and you know you must answer it. In great embarrassment and discomfort, you go to the door. Your mind races, wondering who might it be. The neighbors? The police, your parents, your spouse, whoever it is, you know you've been found out at your most shameful, guilty, 
painful moment. At first, you do not open the door. So you open the door with great fear. But to your surprise, you are met with the most understanding, compassionate expression you've ever seen in your entire life. The individual at the door looks into your eyes and says, I am God, your father. I am Abba. I have picked out this moment because I need to talk with you. Let's go for a walk. You look into his face, and there is not a trace of him being angry with you, of him being disappointed with you. Rather, the look on his face is pure joy and delight of being with you. He is glad you've opened the door. He knew that if he knocked long enough, you would finally answer. He seems genuinely happy to see you and really wants to take a walk with you. You do not refuse. You step out of that room and you take a walk with Abba. His knock on the door, his voice all communicate massive power and authority. He looks at you with the same striking expression, total understanding marked by great compassion. He says, I know you are weak. I know what you are doing. I know right now you do not trust me. I know you intensely dislike me. I know at your core you have no interest in a relationship with me. But I need to share with you that we are the only ones who know who you are. You do not even know who you are. You are chained by guilt. You are bound by shame. You are filled with deep resentment. You're in a fog of guilt and shame and bad memories. But we see through this fog. I can see beyond your problems. I can see somebody you have never seen. I can see the real you. Because I know who you are, I have intervened at this moment to show you how much you mean to me. So let's take a walk walk away from this room that's been stuffy, confined, and dark. The room that defines you, that represents your brokenness. You don't want to hang out there. So you and Abba step out of that room and step into all that is beautiful and lovely. At first, you aren't sure you have permission to leave the room. The room has so defined you and your identity. You're so used to being in that room. But in your first few steps, you aren't sure if you can trust Abba. You've never been with somebody like this before. He is all-knowing and all-compassion. And the longer you are with him, the more you can trust him. You find this deep yearning in your soul to be in his presence, as if you were meant to experience the intimacy of this moment. You feel you are completely known and completely loved. There's a voice inside your head that says, this cannot be real. Overriding all the voices you've listened to, you need to hear the whisper of divine love. You find his presence delightful and safe. You are free to talk to him about anything without condemnation. Your conversation covers topics and events you've never shared with anyone. After you empty your heart, Abba says, I want to have a relationship with you. You are amazed by the great love of Abba. Could it be that this great person wants to have a relationship with me? Your heart is welling up with joy that he would knock at your door, that he would take a walk with you, that he would want to be your best friend. While you are pondering having a relationship with him, he says, there's somebody I want you to meet. Just wait till you meet my son. Since you've gone through that door, you've been hanging your head, staring at your feet. You've been overwhelmed by your own feelings. 
You do not realize the Father has been walking you up a slight hillside. You've not been paying attention to the fact <laughs> since you've been paying attention to Abba. Your heart is ricocheting between embarrassment and red-handed guilt, all in the presence of such a powerful and compassionate person. In a kind way, he touches your shoulder with his hand and turns you to face the east. He directs your eyes to a hillside where you see a young man on a cross. His face, the man on the cross, radiates the very same expression of Abba, total understanding marked by total compassion. You realize the man on the cross is not just anyone. It is Abba's son. It is Jesus. There are many other sights to see at the cross. The sky is black. The soldiers are gambling over his clothes. Mary is crying her eyes out. People are shouting things beneath the cross. But your eyes are fixed on Jesus on the cross. You can't take your eyes off him. He has been bruised and beaten. He is bleeding rather profusely from his wounds. His arms are stretched out to show you the depth of the love of God. You feel the injustice of this moment, knowing he has done nothing to deserve this. At the same time, you feel his great compassion, his love for you that has taken him to this place. And the Father said, we picked this strategic moment, this moment of your greatest weakness. We did not pick the moment in the future when you would be healthy. We chose this moment to show you how serious we are about your healing and how significant you are to us. My son is dying for you because you are worth a son to me. You are worth more than your guilt. You are worth more than your shame. He is dying to give you a brand new identity. You are my beloved. You study him closely now and see that his hands and feet are pierced. And there's an inordinate amount of blood flowing out of his body. And you hear him say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The sky is pitch black and the thunder is flashing. And you ask, Abba, what is happening? And he said, this is what the prophets predicted long ago, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, that God would step into humanity, taking on the appearance of a man, becoming obedient to death, drinking the full measure of the cup, being stripped down naked so that you could be clothed with his righteousness, taking your guilt so you could be free, taking your shame so you won't have to hide, giving up his life so that you could find life. And Abba is saying, I love you this much. You are worth a son to me. I do not want sin defining your life anymore. You are my beloved. You are my son. You are my daughter. Abba, with all of his tenderness and compassion, his affection, you see written on his face, you see written on the face of Jesus. And he says, I am here paying for every sin you have ever done and every sin ever done to you. I am Jesus, your Redeemer. Your sin has been transferred to me, and I transfer to you my righteousness and my joy and my peace. And Abba is very moved that something is being moved out of your soul. All right, there we go.
It's at the foot of the cross that we find ourselves gazing up at the one who is the ultimate shepherd for us. I'd like to say to you this morning, it's at the foot of the cross that we are not to gather rocks to carry. We're not to pick up the rocks of shame and guilt. We're not to gather the rocks of judgment. We're not to gather rocks to carry just for the sake of carrying rocks. It's at the foot of the cross that we are called to lay down our rocks, Mm. the ones that we've been carrying, the ones that have weighted us, the ones that have kept our hands full, not being able to open them to receive. That is where we find ourselves. But we also want to take you to another image this morning. A lot would say that the 23rd Psalms is a psalm of the funeral. It's a funeral psalm. And as I referred, a lot of people always request that this psalm be read at their funeral. Actually, it's not. It's a love letter. It is a love letter written from David when he realizes that he's had a great shepherd over his life who has kept him. But we also have to remind ourselves that we can't allow ourselves to forget that the one that came to protect us and lead us as little lambs is and will always be referred to in Scripture as a lamb himself. Scripture says, Behold the Lamb of God. We find ourselves at the cross and maybe it doesn't look like a little lamb hanging there. Looks like a man bruised and bleeding. Isaiah says he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Jesus, who came as a great shepherd, arrived as a little lamb like you and I. Can I allow myself to imagine that a child that a child could have such a responsibility laid on him to be my shepherd? We have a new granddaughter in our house by the name of Ruby May. And she is the epitome of beauty. And I know you can't see that from there. But afterwards, ask me, I'll show you. I reserve that right. But can I imagine myself that laid on a child would be the responsibility? That that child, the innocence of that child is to lay over my corruption. I see it as silk and rubble. It's as if taking silk, fine fabric, and laying it over rubble, decay, and corruption. He is that fine silk, and I am that rubble. So I find myself at the foot of the cross, but I also cannot forget that in a manger, this is the time of year that we honor Jesus' birth. And can I ask you not to get caught up in the rush of commercialism? 
Can I ask you to keep your mind on the fact that this is the season that a baby came that he might grow and minister and become a shepherd? See, we would like to say that Christmas is the birth of Christ and we don't want to look at the cross. But I'm saying to you that the manger and the cross are one and the same. That's deep to ponder. Could he cover my brokenness? Could the one hanging there cover me, broken, bleeding? Could that be the same child? To become my intimate shepherd. I want you to stand to your feet, please. As our led us down this journey, and I want you to go back to that posture of closing your eyes. And at any time this morning, this altar is open. The cross is available. We displayed a manger in front of the cross this morning. It will remain there through the Christmas season because we don't want to forget of how innocence became our beauty, our covering. I'm going to ask that you close your eyes. I'm going to ask that you go back into that journey that R led you, that you're out of your room and you're at the foot of the cross. In front of you is Jesus on the cross and behind you is Jesus in a manger. Sweet little Jesus boy They made you be born in a manger Sweet little holy child Didn't know who you was Didn't know you'd come to save us, Lord, to take our sin away. Our eyes was blind, we couldn't see. We didn't know who you was. time ago you was born born in that manger sweet little Jesus boy the world treat you mean Lord treat me mean too but Please, sir, forgive us, Lord. We didn't know twas you. Sweet little Jesus boy, long, long time ago, sweet. 
And we didn't know who you was. Can we don't lower the lights, please? As the worship team plays this morning softly, I think it would just be so appropriate that we enter this season into worshiping at the feet of Jesus and the foot of the cross this morning. If you're here this morning and you have left that room and you do find yourself at the foot of the cross, then there is pain and apprehension. Please respond this morning and allow the Lord to minister to you. The altars are open. We'll pray with you. We'll agree with you. We'll do whatever you need us to do. Please take your liberty. We have time for you to respond.